Luke chapter 4. And another thing, it's our anniversary, our one-year anniversary here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields. Okay, um, we saw in chapter 3 the baptism of Jesus. We saw the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit all together, but distinct, clearly distinct. And pretty much we saw the inauguration of Jesus Christ's ministry, chapter 3. Now, in Luke chapter 4, we're going to see three recorded temptations of Christ just prior to his ministry. We spoke before in different services, subtle differences between temptation and testing. It's the same Greek word, but it's used contextually to decide which word it is. Attempting is more of an enticement of your own desires used against you. And uh, testing is more of a trial or a pressure put on you to do the wrong thing. But you can see a lot of times where both of those words are one and the same. So we're going to start with verse 1. It says, Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing. And afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. So you see uh, five things that I want to focus on in the first uh, two verses. But with the mindset of keeping Jesus as our example or our standard, and these are not in any particular order, The first thing is Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. There's no way to do any spiritual battle without the Holy Spirit. Scripture tells us that all believers are sealed with the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 1.22 But we also know that we all have different levels of intensity or, so to speak, of his influence based on what we allow. Well, how do we know that? Well, because the Bible says that the Holy Spirit can be grieved and the Holy Spirit can be quenched, almost like the putting out of a fire. And to me, I think of the Holy Spirit. I don't know why I got this image. It reminds me of a gas stove. You've got four burners and the pilot light. Some people allow God to be in their life. Some people allow themselves to really be filled with the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit was a flame, some people have all four burners cranking at the same time. And some Christians uh, let other things distract them. They let the things of the world distract them. And to me, that, that reminds me of some Christians just have that pilot light, that little pilot light. When you lift up the, 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 the top of the stove, you see that little flame there. It won't even heat up a pot of coffee. But it depends on how much of the Holy Spirit we will allow in our lives. The second thing here is God's Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. Say it ain't so. God would lead us into a, a situation where we would have a trial. That actually goes against a lot of popular teachings. I just want to read a little excerpt from a book. It's called Healed Without Scars from David Evans. He says this on page 40. In a biblical test, an individual encounters a situation in which he is coaxed or driven to go in the wrong direction. It is not God who pulls the person in the wrong way. The situation tempts him, and God always provides a choice along with the test. The godly choice is the way to escape from temptations. Life is a series of continuous testing, with each event drawing a response from us, while at the same time defining our character. The character and actions of a person are closely connected. In fact, actions often reveal an individual's character. I think he puts it very well in that uh, passage there. So when 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 somebody becomes a Christian... Unfortunately, people try to entice people into Christianity, telling them that life is always going to be a bowl of cherries. And that's not true. 
But we do become free. We become free of sin. We become free of guilt. We become free of bondage in the Christian life. And if we've never faced hardships, we'll never grow. Because Romans 5 tells us that we have to develop that approved character. And trials and tests are part of that process by which, when we go through, it defines our character. It makes us people of character. Show me somebody who's been through a lot of hardships in their life, and I'll show you a person of great character. But uh, beware of those who say that God wants you to always be healthy and wealthy, and without ever a care in the world. We're king's kids, but God doesn't want us to be spoiled rich kids either. Um, And three, Jesus was tempted. When does temptation become a sin? Let's turn to James 1, 14 through 15. James says, But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So there's a a certain point of time where the actual act of temptation is not a sin. You're you're getting tempted by a situation. Now, if you do what 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and you turn away from that temptation, you haven't sinned. But James tells us that there's a progression. There's a point in time where you cross the line, and then that gives birth to sin. But God always provides a way of escape. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. I'm going to go back and forth a little bit. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who would not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. So God always provides an escape route. He doesn't want to see us fall into sin and ruin our lives. There was, if you ever look back in your life, whenever you've done something that was pretty, you kind of fell into a temptation, if you really look back, you'll see that God has always provided some escape route for you to get away from that temptation. Um, who is that comic? You can't blame the devil, you know. Uh, there was a comic who coined the term, the devil made me do it. Was that Flip Wilson? Okay, I got it right, good. You can't, you can't say that, the devil made me do it, because God always provides a way for you to get out of that temptation. And Jesus fasted. A little bit about fasting. It's to deny self of food or certain types of food or food and water for a certain period of time. As a Jew, Jesus would be used to fasting. Uh, he also, in Scripture, fasting is associated with grief, repentance, mourning, decision-making, and humbling. Physically, 40 days that we know of medical, you know, biological science, 40 days is the upper limit on what's humanly possible for anyone to fast. And that duration takes an extensive toll on the body. You have conditions called ketosis, which is a certain process of fat burning and muscle wasting. The body actually starts to eat itself for energy because there's no outside source of food. So if you've never fasted before, please don't try the 40-day fast because I don't want to be blamed for something happening to you. (laughs) But seriously, uh, short fast has been medically proven that fasting is good for the body. It's It's a cleansing thing, but that's not why we do it. In a nutshell, it's a subjugation or denial of physical needs to accentuate accentuate the spiritual awareness or communion with God. Jesus was an example of drawing strength from God. We saw Jesus. He goes into the wilderness. Uh, We don't know. Was he tempted every day? Was it certain periods of time? It was was a whole 40 days. Uh, John was in the wilderness. But the interesting thing is both Jesus and John had communion constantly with the Father. 
you saw a lot of situations where Jesus would withdraw himself in the scripture to be alone with the Father. So they were our example. They had that alone time with God. And I got to tell you, Christians, if you don't have that alone time with God, you're setting yourself for, you're setting yourself up for failure. We have to have that alone time with God. I remember um, actually this past week, <laughs> I had a lot of trials. Uh, this was a tough week, but I remember Wednesday night I was driving home from work. It was twelve, you know, quarter to one in the morning, and uh, I just was praying. And it was quiet, and I, I pulled into the driveway, and, you know, I'm always trying to hurry up and get into bed, clean the cat box, and shut all the lights off, and do all my chores before I get into bed. But something just told me, stop. Because my son gets up early in the morning, so I have a small window to catch some sleep. So I just got out of the car, and I started walking down the street. I don't know what people would think as they were driving by, but, just, you know, I just needed that alone time with God. And you know in your heart when you're just not close to your father. You know when you need that communion. You know that you have to get away from everybody. You know, get away from the phone, get away from the, the cell phone, the, the, the computer. And you need that alone time with God. That is crucial if we're going to walk with the Lord. And then the last thing mentioned in these two verses that I want to focus in on is the devil. The Greek word for devil is diabolos, which is where we get the word diabolic. And in Hebrew, the word is Satan. Um, it's funny how in our language, our, our vernacular now, we get a lot of our words from the scripture, you know, phrases too. What am I, my brother's keeper? That comes from Genesis. And the word excruciating, um, it means horrific pain. It comes from the Latin word excruciatus, which literally means out of the crucifixion or from the cross. And probably one day I should do a study on all the terms that we use today and all the words that we get somehow, some way from the scripture. Who says that our society doesn't come from a Judeo-Christian background? But the devil is real. He's a fallen angel who led a rebellion against God. And if you want to go back on the website, um, a, few, a few studies back, Gary Stravel did a great job in his Got Wings message about uh, Satan being the fallen angel. Isaiah 14 covers it, Ezekiel 28, and 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9 tells us that the devil roams around like a roaring lion, seeking to whom he may devour. That's his job. His whole job is to destroy us, to separate us from the Father. It's like, think about it in, uh, in crime. You get a few guys together, and they want to rob a bank, or they do something, and the cops finally catch up with them. They get one guy, and he squeals, because he doesn't want to go down by himself. I'm not going to jail by myself. So he squeals and takes down the other three guys. It happens all the time. Satan's the same way. He's a great criminal. He doesn't want to go to hell by himself. He wants to take as many people down in flames with him. So that's what he's going to do. He's going to seek to destroy us. If you don't believe the devil exists, then probably unwittingly you're being used by him without even knowing it. So he really is, uh, he really is real. He's the master of warfare. He's had thousands of years to plan to how to destroy people. He's the greatest deceiver that ever lived. You see that in the scriptures, 2 Corinthians 11, 12 through 15. Paul says this, But what I do, I will continue to do, that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. So Satan makes himself 
beautiful. He, he deceives people and looking like an angel of light. I'll take a little informal poll here. How many people, this is a serious question, how many people have been visited by Satan in all his ugliness and he scared the snot out of you and terrified you? How many people? Okay. Now how many people have been deceived by him into doing something you shouldn't do? He made something look kind of good and you found out in the long run it wasn't such a good idea and you found out later that you were sinning. A lot more people. It works. By transforming himself into an angel of light, he has a much better job of deceiving you. Because if he scares the snot out of you, most likely what you'll do is, you like that expression? <laughs> Lawrence Taylor used to say he used to love to sack the quarterbacks because he used to love to see the snots come out of their nose. Josh, can you strike that from the recording? Anyway, a fool says everything that's on his mind. Anyway, um, going back to the scripture, if Satan terrifies you, you'll be driven to follow God. That's not his plan. He wants to deceive you so you go away from God. So he will become that angel of light. And um, he's the most artful psychologist. Psychology, the study of the mind and how it works. Satan knows you better than you know yourself. He's been following you around since you were born, him and his minions, taking notes. He knows us far better than we know ourselves. I want to read a little excerpt from C.S. Lewis's book called The Screwtape Letters. And basically, it's a fictitious account. The guy's got a brilliant mind. A fictitious account of uh, a demon who writes to his nephew, Demon, and he, he coaches him on how to get people to fall into sin and to, you know, to not be saved. And when he talks about the enemy, remember, you've got to flip yourself. As we read this, you're looking at it from the dark side. When he talks about the enemy, he's talking about God. So he says to his nephew, my dear Wormwood, there's no need to despair. Hundreds of these adult converts have been reclaimed after a brief sojourn in the enemy's camp and are now with us. All the habits of the patient, both mental and bodily, are still in our favor. In our favor. Isn't that the truth? Satan and his minions use our own uh, vices, our own habits against us to keep us from God. Verse 3, it says, And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. 1 John 2:15 through 16, Luke, uh, these temptations by Satan kind of parallel what John talks about in uh, 1 John. 1 John 2:15 through 16, it says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So you see that these temptations kind of fall into three categories that John talks about. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So this turning these stones into bread would appeal to Jesus' physical needs. He would be hungry at this point. Now, I don't know about you. But when I smell bread, my, my, my stomach starts to just start making noises. As a matter of fact, I'm the carbohydrate king. And I could actually, in my mind, smell the bread right now. You know, I'm starting to get... But uh, I can just imagine the terrible hunger pangs that Jesus had at this point. Uh, the, the lust of the flesh is, is to satisfy the most innermost desires, what fleshly part of us craves. And to clarify this... It wouldn't be sin for Jesus to eat at this point, but Jesus always made a practice of never to use his 
supernatural powers to benefit himself. He would have got off on the wrong foot because we saw all through Scripture he would heal diseases, he would open the eyes of the blind, the, the lame would walk. Um, he did all kinds of incredible things, but never for himself, to glorify himself. And he wasn't going to start now. What are some of our base desires that we need to get under control? The lust of our flesh. It's like you almost feel your, your body moving towards a certain direction. And your, the spirit is saying, wait a minute, that's not a good idea. But the sin part of us is attached to our flesh, right? Um, you know, maybe solving all your problems with your mouth. Now, before I was a Christian, if somebody said something to me, I would get angry if I couldn't think of a witty response. So I spent most of my life, I spent most of my life thinking of witty responses if somebody would say something against me. And I actually got rather good at it. Now I become a Christian. Now I, I have a hard time keeping my mouth shut. You know, my wife says to me, you've got such a big mouth. You always got to say what's on your mind. So as a Christian, we have to learn self-control to control those fleshly desires or your fists. Some people, their whole life, all they know is how to use this to get what they want. And that's not what it's about. Uh, or some people, it's a level of physical comfort that you would stop at nothing to get. I think about when you know, I did the prison ministry, and I know some people here do prison ministry. People bristle, you know, hey, what do you think about coming into the prisons? It's dirty. It's smelly. I could get hurt. You know, it's not a very pretty place to look at. It's depressing. Most people, you know, out of all the ministries that people would sign up for, prison ministry is usually on the bottom because of people's desires for comfort. Well, I don't want to go into the prison. Well, those people need to hear the gospel too, right? Pastor Lloyd did a series on spiritual warfare, and he talked about how the devil deals with us spiritually. Uh, you know, I'm, I wasn't much of a wrestler, but Marty was and Lloyd was, and uh, they talked to me a lot about how it works. And it's like the devil, when you square off with your opponent, you kind of you feel each other out. You kind of do this thing where you're, you're like grappling with each other. You grab, you, you push, you pull, and you, you're trying to see the strengths of the other person. And what Lloyd said was that you, the, the, the devil sometimes kind of grabs you loosely, and he gives you a false sense of security. You think, well, this isn't so bad. This is spiritually, by the way. And then when you're not paying attention, he puts you into a submission hold. And this is a series how he works on you in life. We think we kind of get past these certain temptations or these certain uh, things, and Satan kind of lets us, kind of holds us down, and then he lets us go, and then he does it all over again. And we kind of never learn. But two weeks ago, uh, two Sundays ago after the service, I felt on top of the world. Everything was going great. Uh, life was wonderful. And then that was my, my period of, of Satan kind of holding me loosely. And I kind of get a false sense of security. Uh, and then last week was brutal. <laughs> Everything went wrong last week. It's like he had me in a full Nelson. I, I just never learned. But Satan here, he's uh, attacking the Father's provisions. Why don't you turn the stone into bread, seeing that the Father abandoned you out there? You ever feel like that? Sometimes we feel like that. And it's almost like, I mean, I don't hear voices, okay, so don't worry about that. But it's almost like you, you, it's in your spirit. You feel or you sense that, you know, you're, you're, not, you're worthless or... Um, God's not with you, or he's, look, he's not providing for you. And it's just the lies of the enemy. It's the lies of the enemy to trip you up. And that's all they are is lies. But Jesus gives us our way out. He answered it with scripture. I mean, my whole life here is devoted to this book, is devoted to the word of God. So when I believe or feel something that's contrary to his word, I've got to go back into the word, because otherwise I might as well quit here. What, what am I doing this for if I don't believe what it says? Uh, but Jesus answered him with scripture. Deuteronomy 8 
1 through 4, that was his response. Now, ironically, this whole thing about bread and, and feeding Jesus, let's turn to John 6, starting with verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Some people use Jesus just for physical sustenance. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, What shall we do, that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Therefore they said, What sign will you perform then, that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Now skip over to verse 47. Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give you is my flesh, which I shall give you for the life of the world. I shall give for the life of the world. So Satan wanted him to kind of take the quick way out. But ironically, how, how unusual, because Jesus is the bread of life. No matter what Jesus' stomach was telling him, that would have been a cheap way out, and he didn't take it. Verse 5 in Luke. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. The next temptation is covered under the lust of the eyes. The lust of the eyes is designed to draw us away from the things of God for something that's perceived to be better. Not better, but perceived to be better. It's an illusion. It does two things. It denies God's goodness. He's holding out on you. Could you picture Adam and Eve in the garden? They had all these fruit. It tasted good. I mean, life couldn't be better. You know, it was a warm climate. They didn't have to worry about what to wear every morning when they got up. They had all this fruit to eat, and they still wanted that one tree that God said, don't, don't take of it. And, but it was beautiful fruit. It was fruit to eat. Even though they had everything they could possibly want, they still wanted the fruit from that tree. It was a lie. And I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm positive that if they could have, after what happened with the sin and the whole decay of the, of the creation, if they could have turned back time and said, I ain't touching that tree, that they would have done it. Because it was a trick. It was a lie from Satan to talk them into something that was perceived to be better. God's holding out on you. You know, that all that fruit is good, but wait till you taste this fruit. This is way better. So all the way from the beginning, the lie of God's holding out on you. And the temptation to take shortcuts. How many of us have taken shortcuts because of our impatience? You know, there's an expression that says there's never time to do it right the first time, but there's always time to do it again after you screw it up the first time. If we just would take our time and pray and think things through, most likely our lives would be far better than if we try to take all these shortcuts because we end up doing it over again anyway, wasting time, wasting money, having heartaches. How many of us have made a mess of our lives at one point in time because of shortcuts? I could give you many examples. I'm not going to, but I could. 
Uh, and, you know, there's a kind of story that I think about of the, the lust of the eyes. It actually is funny, so bear with me. Uh, Marty and I were working last week. We're on duty, and we go to a certain room in the police department, and there's a porno mag somebody left out there. So Marty picks it up, throws it in the garbage, and takes some food and throws it on top of it so nobody takes it out and dumps it in the garbage, right? <laughs> so, so we leave, and the janitors come in, and they take little garbages and put them into big garbages and take them out to the dumpster. So as I'm leaving, he doesn't see I'm behind him. He actually has the magazine, and he's kind of trying to hide it in his arm while he's doing the garbage, and he doesn't see me. So I'm thinking, I bet you he's going to put that thing in the janitor's closet. So I let him go by, not seeing me. Sure enough, I walk in the janitor's closet. This is a weird janitor's closet. There's actually absolutely nothing in the janitor's closet except this one magazine sitting on the shelf. I'm like, son of a gun. He took it out of the garbage. He's put it in the closet for later. So I, I go, Marty comes in, and I tell Marty, I'm like, look, I'm not the porno police here, and, and I don't like... I don't like telling people what to do. And, you know, some of those Christians, they, they're on people all the time. That's what they do in the world. But I said, you know, it's kind of weird. So Marty says, well, why don't we play a joke on him? So I'm thinking, okay, I'll play a joke on him. So Marty goes and he looks through all these. Don't believe anything Marty says. You know, those of you that know Marty, he's a big prankster. So he tells you your lights are on outside or something. Just don't believe him. So Marty goes through all these magazines and finds, like, this innocuous magazine, like Golf Digest. And he, he, he sneaks into the janitor's closet, you know, switches them and throws the, the porno mag in the garbage. So just imagine this, this janitor, he comes back and he's looking at this golf digest. This is not what I took out of the garbage. See, the lust of the eyes tricked him. I like a good prank as long as it's not on me. But in a serious note, pornography is not harmless. It's a, it's a profession where, uh, and let's face it, it affects men more than women. Uh, women who are in this profession, they devote their whole careers into tantalizing men. Okay, And even when it's finally the picture is on the Internet or the magazine, it's perfectly doctored, so this person looks like not even human. They look perfect. Um, and from a, a physiological standpoint, if you look at these images over and over again, they found that it affects the neurotransmitter in the brain called dopamine that's affected your pleasure centers. And what happens is you, it actually becomes an addiction. You get hooked by this. And once you're addicted to porn, you know, your spouse won't do it for you anymore. And if you're single, you'll never find anybody who's, who's perfect enough for you. And you, you'll be miserable. So it's not a harmless thing. Some become so far gone that it's not uncommon to find American businessmen in Thailand or some of these other countries buying children. And I don't mean for adoption. I'll leave it at that. A brother in the Lord came to me a few months ago. A brother in the Lord said to me, I stopped looking at porn when I found out that it was a multi-billion dollar industry and how it victimizes women and children. Since 2001, statistics show there were 277 convictions by the federal government in this country alone, convictions alone, for human trafficking. It's disgusting and it's vile. So pornography is not harmless. People will tell you that. We see it all over the place. We're bombarded with it but it's not harmless, and I think it needs to be said. Now, to pick on the women, this is totally not politically correct. I'm sitting and, and I'm doing the study, and I said to my wife, Heather, is there such thing as a Spenders Anonymous? And she goes, I think so. She thinks so. So I go on the website, and I punch in Spenders Anonymous, and sure enough, I've got the homepage for the 12 steps of Spenders Anonymous. Right? 
The first step says this. We admitted we were powerless over spending and money and that our lives had become unmanageable. Now, I know all you closet spenders are going to come to me after the service looking for this. But it, it comes down to sin. It comes down to greed. Well, everything I see, I want. I have to have. You just take out that super piece of plastic, put it down, and whatever you could possibly want is yours. It's the lust of the eyes. You know, Solomon said, whatever my eyes beheld, I did not withhold from my eyes. And he was a miserable man. He had everything he could possibly want. Read Ecclesiastes. He was miserable at the end. So the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. Uh, you know, it, did, did Jesus, or I'm sorry, did Satan now have authority to give these kingdoms to Jesus? Did he have authority to hand them over to Jesus? And the answer is yes. If you read John 12:31 and John 14:30, Jesus says himself that Satan is the ruler of this world. Second uh, Corinthians 4, 3 through 4, Satan is the god of this age who blinds people from seeing the gospel. And Revelation 13:2. There's a situation where the dragon, who's a picture of Satan, gives the authority of the kingdoms to the beast, who's the Antichrist. So Satan, yes, he does have, did have that authority to do that. But the end of the story goes like this. Jesus redeems mankind, and the, he rules the kingdoms of this world anyway. Again, it would have been a shortcut. Taking this, uh, this, this, the kingdoms now would have been, again, circumventing of God's plan, and it would have set a trap for him, because ultimately he would have had to worship Satan to get those kingdoms. Uh, you know, many of us fall for these traps at some times in their life. I think about the Venus flytrap. It's just when we think we know there's the, the meat eaters, the humans, and you have the animal kingdom. They draw nutrients from the, the ground. You ever see how a Venus flytrap works? These things are amazing plants. It it's, has like a taco, a green taco shell that opens up, and it has these fingers on both ends of it. And in the center, by the throat of the plant, is a nectar. And the bugs, the flies, fly into that and... Looks good, smells good, and they're eating that nectar, and slowly that, that plant starts closing in on them, right? And the fly doesn't realize this is happening because it's slow. It's lulling that fly into a false sense of security. Now, I, I've caught flies once in a while, but it takes a lot of practice. You've got to be really quick. But this thing does it slowly, and eventually those teeth close in on the fly where when he realizes that he's in trouble, he can't get out. It's like he's in prison. He can't get out of those bars. It's kind of sick to watch. <laughs> And then the teeth keep going down and, and squeeze the fly and swallow them and digest them. So, I mean, that's, that's the way the lust of the eyes are. It's a trap. It's designed to trap us. We get drawn in by our eyes and we're taken over. It's a diversion. Um, but it all comes down to patience and self-control, which are fruits of the Spirit. The two fruits of the Spirit, patience, self-control. And Jesus, of course, answers uh, Satan with Scripture, verse 8. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6:13 and 10:30, 10:20, excuse me. And Jesus said, answered and said to him, "Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him, and him only you shall serve." And verse 9. Then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, "If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from there." Now you have to picture this: at the highest point of the temple, at the pinnacle. The temple, the temple was a large building. It wasn't like a little house. It was tremendous. And you could read about the construction in the Old Testament, how it was to ex God's exact specifications. And the southeastern corner of the temple would overlook the Kidron Valley. So from the highest of the high of the temple to the lowest of the low to that valley, you're talking several stories. Okay? It would have been quite a spectacle for Jesus 
to jump off that temple and for all the Jewish leaders to see that. Now, this was an appeal to the pride of life and a testing of God. Why? Because if Jesus jumps off that temple and does a swan dive and he makes it safely to the ground, he would gain instant respect by the Jewish leaders who were always looking for a sign anyway. It would have made his life easier. It would have made his ministry easier. And some would even argue, well, gee, if they weren't in such a hurry to crucify him, he could have healed people for 10 years and 15 years instead of three or three and a half. But again, it would have been circumventing God's plan. But Satan's message here was God is denying you what you truly deserve. It's all about you. You know, they have all these reality shows. It's not going to be long before there's, you know, someone's going to hear this message and they're going to steal it. And they're going to say, ah, I got a great reality show. It's all about you. You come in, they give you a car, they whiten your teeth, they do your hair, they give you new clothes. It's all about you. It's coming. It's got to be coming because you have all these weird reality shows. But, and that's what this, this is, is designed to do. Pride really is the root of all sins. If you look at the Ten Commandments, right, thou shalt not, you know, speak evil of God. Well, why would you speak evil of God? Because you think that you're something special and you have the right to speak evil of God. Why would you have any gods before God Almighty? Because maybe he's not giving you what you want. You deserve better. So you're going to go try to pray to another god, right? Stealing. Why would you steal from somebody? Because you feel you deserve what your, your friend has. I should have that too. There's people who spend their whole lives on a block seeing what their neighbors have. Their neighbors have a pool, they get a pool. Their neighbors get a horse, they get a horse. Everything that their neighbors have, they want because they deserve it. Adultery, you know, you can't be satisfied with your mate. You want somebody else because you deserve it. I mean, we can keep going. False witness, covetousness, murder. Somebody's getting in your way. Somebody's irritating you. You've got to get rid of them, rub them out. All the Ten Commandments, pride is behind it, right? God says to rest on the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Well, I don't have to. Because I can, I can go seven days a week. You know, I'm, I'm pretty strong. I'm pretty, uh, you know, uh, motivated. So they all go back to pride. In verse 10, he says, For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you and keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. Are you surprised to see Satan quote scripture? Well, don't be. <laughs> you shouldn't be. Because collectively, out of everyone in this room together, Satan knows the scripture far better than we do. He's had thousands of years to study it. But unfortunately, he's a master at distortion. And you can see that in the cults. On the outside, they look like Christianity. They talk about Jesus. They talk about salvation. Until you find out the hidden meanings of uh, their, their belief system. And there's just a little bit that's off. Well, everything's kind of the same, but Jesus isn't really God. Well, everything's kind of the same, but you know, you could be a God too when you die. You could be equal to God. If you have a, a well that has clear, fresh, pure water, and you put a teaspoon of botulinum toxin in it, that whole well is garbage. It's destroyed. And that's what um, heresy does. Galatians 1, 8 and 9, Paul says this. Paul says, But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Now, when the scripture repeats something, one right after the other, it means pay attention to it. So Satan quotes, uh, what he's really quoting here is Psalm 91, 11 through 12. But he's taking it out of context. It, it's worth taking a look. Let's go to Psalm 91. What he does is, 11 through 12 says this, For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. 
They shall bear you up in their hands, lest you dash your foot against the stone. First of all, I don't know, I'm, I'm going to guess that this was done purposely, but if you go back to Luke's gospel, Satan omits the second part of verse 11. He says, for he shall give his angels charge over you. It doesn't say to keep you in all your ways. And then he goes right into, they shall bear you up in their hands lest you dash your foot against the stone. So Satan is manipulating the scripture to make it look like the primary purpose here is to take care of your bodily needs, for protection for your bodily needs. But he omits in all your ways. The second thing is, when you read the Psalm 91, it's more allegorical, uses allegorical language. And I'll, I'll give you an example. I'll read one through four. It says, he who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. That doesn't mean that if we follow God, that everywhere we walk, there's this big cloud because God blocks out the sun. It's a picture of his protection. Verse two, I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in him I will trust. It doesn't mean that God is a big building made of stones to protect you. It means that he protects you and you can trust him. Three, he shall surely deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. The fowler was a trapper of birds. It doesn't mean that we're a bunch of little chickens. And then the fourth one, it says, he shall cover you with his feathers and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. So now God has feathers. He's not a big chicken. The, the picture is, it's a picture of a, a, a hen or a bird who covers their young with their wings. It's a picture of protection. That's what this is all about. But Satan here takes it completely out of context. And verse 12, And Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Uh, what Jesus does is he answers this particular challenge with another scripture, Deuteronomy 6.16, which I'll read. Deuteronomy 6.16 says, You shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him in Massah. Now, what that's referring to is in Exodus 17, 1 through 7, when Moses was leading the children of Israel through the wilderness, they were thirsty and they complained. It was one of their many complaining sessions. They complained so bad to the point of they were going to stone Moses. And he got frightened and he called on the Lord and said, these people are ready to stone me. They're looking for water. They tested God. So God brought them the water, but he called the place Massah and Meribah, which means tested and contention. They were contentious towards him. But testing the Lord, you're pushing God and you're trying this patience. You're also putting yourself foolishly in a dangerous position and forcing God's hand to protect you. That's part of testing the Lord. God tests us so that we can become stronger and we become more Christ-like. We don't test God. That's not, it doesn't work both ways. In verse 13, it says, Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Satan is an opportunist. He will look for every possible way to blindside us. That's what he does. He deceives us and he blindsides us, usually tempting us using our own desires against us. But there's hope. The hope is in the Lord. And the only way to get a handle on our temptation is to be in the Lord, is to pray, as Jesus showed us to pray, and to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit.